Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Thursday, July 14th. I'm Desiree Frazier, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, what this stage of the pandemic looks like for pharmacists. Then we talk to a Mississippi gun safety advocate fresh off a trip to the White House. And a new exhibit at the two Mississippi museums explores the legacy of the iconic Green Book. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. A rise in at-home testing and a changing landscape of COVID treatment is shifting the battle against the pandemic from hospitals to drugstores. That's putting pharmacists under pressure. Olivia Strain is vice president of the Mississippi Pharmacists Association. She speaks with MPB's Kobe Vance. It's been a little hectic, mainly in the sense of just how much information changes constantly and how we have had to change how we do things on a constantly evolving basis. So when we first started testing for COVID, we were, you know, at remote sites, testing through drive-throughs that were set up. And then we started testing within pharmacies um, and we started doing rapid tests as well as PCR tests. And so having to learn all of these different types of things and changing how they fit into the general pharmacy workflow. And then on top of that, we added COVID vaccines. And again, that kind of started as COVID vaccines in long-term care facilities. And then it became COVID vaccines in the pharmacy, but only for um, certain high-risk groups, which then turned into vaccines for adult patients. And then we dropped down to, you know, 12 and older. And then we dropped down now to even our very young children. Um, and then you add in all these different boosters. And so it's a constantly evolving process where pharmacists are trying to keep up on a daily basis with the news. And just because we tell you, no, we can't give you this booster today doesn't mean that that's the same answer we'll give you two days from now. Um, and so that's been very difficult to keep up with in real time, so to speak. And um, just keeping supplies in stock, having enough tests, having enough vaccines, because there's different vaccines for adults and for pediatrics. And so all of that has just kind of been compounding on top of your typical pharmacy workflow. We've seen in Mississippi, uh, uh, there's been a 
since I would say April, there's been a bit of a lull when it comes to coronavirus transmission, but now we're starting to see that rise again, according to the Department of Health. Are y'all starting to see that reflected in pharmacies? We are. So we're seeing that reflected in the number of patients that we have coming in for booster vaccines, as well as the number of prescriptions that we are getting for medications like Paxlovid, which is used to help treat some symptoms of COVID as long as it's within the first five days of diagnosis and symptoms. I wanted to actually talk with you about Paxlovid. This is a pretty big um, adjustment, as I understand it, taking this medication that's been in hospitals for the past several months to more than a year, I believe, uh, and now getting it out into communities through pharmacies. What are your thoughts on you know having that drug that people can get to be able to react to being diagnosed with COVID? Yeah, so it greatly increases access to care. Um, and that way, if you are not near a hospital, if you're not near your doctor's clinic, if you are only near a pharmacy, it increases your access to this medication and to the care that you need. Um, with that being said, there are a lot of limitations and a lot of cautions that go along with this medication. And so it really is only supposed to be used for certain high-risk patients. Um, there's a whole list of potential drug interactions that go along with this. Um, and a lot of those are medications that are just common everyday medications that may be used for hypertension or heart failure or some immunocompromised conditions. And with this being such a new medication into community practice, it's important for all pharmacists and patients to be properly counseling on these potential interactions or to be fully aware of, you know, the screening checklist that the Mississippi Department of Health and has put out um, as far as who is this available for if it's being tested and treated in a pharmacy or even when it's being prescribed by a doctor, making sure you're following up with the patient to verify potential drug-drug interactions, to verify what chronic health conditions they have, um, to see if there are some acute medications that may be used, maybe for migraines. That's a big one. There are certain medications used for migraines that would just need to be stopped while on this. They don't have to be stopped long-term, but while taking this. So just making sure that the consultations are happening in the pharmacy is um, a big deal. I know it's only been less than a week at this point, but what has demand been like for Paxlovid so far? So we've been seeing it in the pharmacy for quite some time, but as actual prescriptions coming in from providers, we are not um, yet doing test-to-treat, um, meaning we are not running our own test in the pharmacy and then prescribing the Paxlovid ourselves. So um, I do believe that that's probably the future and where we will be headed um, with this new release that just came out last week. But currently, we may test in the pharmacy, but then the patients would still need a prescription from their provider instead of us just writing a prescription for the Paxlovid ourselves. You know, what are your thoughts on how the pandemic has affected pharmacies and how they work in communities to help address public health and also you know, help people get the things they need along with their medications? Yeah, so 
COVID has greatly affected pharmacy, um, anywhere from just the volume that we're seeing in the pharmacy, and now we are doing COVID testing in the pharmacy, which means hopefully down the road that leads to other testings, whether it's testing for flu or for strep or other viruses. Um, and now that we have this test to treat for Paxlovid that just came out, then that could also then potentially mean test to treat for some of those other things like influenza and strep that I mentioned. Um, but it also was changes such as previously it was only pharmacists that were providing vaccinations. And now we have technicians that are trained to provide certain vaccinations. So that was a big change within the pharmacy. Uh, we have technicians that are running COVID tests. So that's another big change in the pharmacy. But all of this is being added on top of everything that was already going on in the pharmacy. And so it's just kind of um, blown up community pharmacy very quickly. Another positive, though, is the relationships that have been built within community pharmacy partnering with public health. So partnering with Mississippi State Department of Health or other public health agencies and just having to collaborate together to expand access to care um, because the health department cannot handle this all alone and community pharmacy cannot handle this all alone. And so we have all really had to partner together and work together to do some of these COVID clinics to reach some of our underserved patients, um, to just really get access to care in places that maybe don't have as much access um, or just to help out in highly condensed places where maybe there is access to care, but it's just so overwhelming right now that we've had to find other ways to partner together. Um, even that has been in the sense of maybe in a community pharmacy, you may have seen a nurse during high peak COVID um, immunization times several months back or a year back. You may have seen nurses working in some of the pharmacies or working at some of the long-term care clinics giving partnered with the pharmacies to give COVID immunizations. So there's been a big collaboration um, between pharmacy and public health. And so that's been a great, a great outcome of this. Olivia Strain is vice president of the Mississippi Pharmacists Association. Coming up, we talk to a Mississippi gun safety advocate fresh off a trip to the White House. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Do you drive a vehicle? Then you'll find AutoCorrect helpful, especially on Coach Charlie's Tip of the Week. Listen to our podcast with me, Coach Charlie Melton, on any podcasting platform or on the MPB Public Media app. If you're a sustaining member of MPB Think Radio, we appreciate your support of our programs. To become a sustainer, go to mpbonline.org. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Jackson resident Reverend Lorenz O'Neill was at the White House this week when President Biden signed a bill that imposes new restrictions on gun ownership. The law comes amid a nationwide string of mass shootings that have persisted throughout the summer. Neal is an outspoken gun control advocate in Mississippi and a member of the group Every Town for Gun Safety. He tells MPB's Rhonda Dunaway he's been deeply affected by gun violence as well. I did lose my mother and my nephew, but also lost a student 
when I was teaching school, uh, my friend, Reverend Clemente Pigney, was the pastor at Mother Emanuel uh, AME in Charleston, South Carolina, and a number of friends and loved ones over the years to gun violence, but uh, they are the primary component of my story, Sherry. Tell me about your trip to Washington, and as I understand, this is on the um, in celebration of the Safer Communities Act. Uh, yeah, well, one of the things we appreciated about the uh, the legislation is that it was bipartisan in both houses of Congress, and that it includes key components of what our movement advocates for, which is responsible gun ownership and storage. That's the biggest component, um, making sure that gun owners like myself and many others across this country uh, safely handle our guns, store our guns where safely, where, you know, can't be accessible by any person who doesn't need to have them. Um, the other was some, um, of course, background expansion, closing the boyfriend loophole, which uh, regards domestic uh, violence, those persons who have been convicted of domestic violence, not having access to weapons. Um, some red flag laws, which is pretty much similar to domestic violence laws. Uh, those persons who come across who have been deemed a danger to themselves or to others by way of medical professionals, law enforcement, uh, and the legal jurisprudence that they are uh, unable to access weapons. If their weapons are there, uh, they are taken out away, taken out of the home to guarantee no harm. And this also includes uh, persons with suicidal uh yeah, that was my next question. This It looks like the law does a lot of community mental health expansion. I don't see any banning of any type of firearms. I am not personally. I am not in favor of banning any firearms. This is me personally, not on behalf of any other organization. Banning firearms or anything of that nature, I think it's unconstitutional. If, just for me. But... Um, the law does address the critical issues that are very pertinent to this moment, restricting access to, to weapons that persons should not have, um, ensuring safe storage, responsible gun ownership, uh, accommodating those persons like myself who are gun owners, also ensuring that the community uh, gets a greater sense of involvement by promoting um, uh, violence interruption programs in um, urban areas or across the country. Also, by ensuring um, that those persons, we know that mental health is a, a large component of a large contributor to gun violence. So promoting mental health is uh, as a community as well as uh, a national need is, is also part of it. Uh, because I'm a pastor, yes, um, I I see life holistically. I, I see life um, through the lens of Christianity, which says that all persons should have life abundantly. Uh, also, as a therapist, my, my doctorate is in community counseling psychology. I see the need for us to be more invested in building community. And building a safe community requires in persons uh, 
acknowledging all all facets of what contribute to a negative, unhealthy community. And gun violence is one of many. There's so much intersectionality that the gun law would not address. But that's where the emphasis on the community and the emphasis on individuals like myself who serve as advocates, raising our stories and our voices, as well as uh, advocating for safer communities. As far as community programs, are you or anyone you're affiliated with planning on having some community uh, policing programs? Well, yes, we partner with Jackson Police Department. We here at my church, we in uh, uh, surrounding churches, we partner. We've had a number of uh, trainings and summer programs. We work with Heinz Behavioral Health and um, uh, their um, youth advocacy groups and training. So we we have been, been intentional. COVID, COVID, unfortunately, impeded on a lot of that. As you know, so we saw a lot more increase in violent crimes among young people, teenagers, and young adults. But we've been partnering with uh, those organizations for a number of years just to ensure that there's something that the kids can have a a positive relationship with law enforcement, uh, the judicial uh, system, and they're not afraid of it. They understand it. As well as, again, with Hans Behavioral Health System, uh, they're coming in and they're speaking with the kids. They're interacting with the children. And I said, not only my church, but a number of uh, churches within our immediate community have been doing the same. So there's been an ongoing effort in partnership with uh, Jackson Police Department, Jackson Fire Department, um, and other organizations to build a relationship with these faith communities so that we can help as we need to help. Reverend Lorenzo Neal is a gun safety advocate in Jackson. Coming up, a new exhibit at the two Mississippi museums explores the legacy of the iconic Green Book. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. When you look at your vehicle, think of MPB. Need to get rid of your ride? Donate it by calling 877-MPB-4-CAR. Need to have some work done on your truck? Listen to AutoCorrect Thursdays at 10, Saturdays at 11. An MPB license plate reminds you that MPB is with you wherever you go. Go to your county office and ask for an MPB car tag. MPB and cars, better together. I'm Josie Bidwell, nurse practitioner and associate professor of preventive medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. On Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, there's information you can use to help maintain a healthy lifestyle. Just search for Southern Remedy on your favorite podcasting app. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. A traveling Smithsonian exhibit dedicated to the famous Negro Motorist Green Book is currently on display at the two Mississippi museums. Michael Morris is director of public engagement at the museums, which are part of the State Department of Archives and History. He speaks with Mississippi Edition producer Rob Lane. The exhibit explores how the Green Book Guide was an invaluable resource for African Americans who traveled during the early part of the 20th century. Um, and uh, that exhibit is up through September of this year. And so I encourage everybody to come out and, and, and check it out. 
So what's it got? What can someone expect to see? The Negro Motorist Green Book um, was first created in 1936 by a postman named uh, Victor Hugo Green. He operated out of Harlem in New York. And um, the reason the book existed at all was to provide black travelers with information about restaurants, gas stations, department stores, and other businesses that welcome African Americans. I mean, as you know, Rob, during this time period that we're talking about, you know, African Americans uh, were not welcome in uh, all businesses. And so it was important that this guide um, was created to inform African Americans about which businesses um, they could actually spend their money in. Um, and what you're going to see is uh, artifacts related to this guide, to the motels, hotels, and restaurants um, that were listed in this guide all across the United States. And um, as we do with all exhibits uh, that we bring in, um, we do what we call Mississippian it up. So you're going to see a lot of information about some of the sites that were listed here in Mississippi, um, from the Mississippi Delta all the way um, here in, to Jackson. Could you tell us about a few of those sites? Sure. So um, one site that comes to mind that I'm sure a lot of uh, your listeners will be familiar with is the Summers Hotel. Um, it was one of two Jackson hotels um, that were available for African Americans. And what makes it um, really significant is the fact that in the lounge, in the basement, was the Subway Lounge. And um, uh, a lot of uh, prominent blues artists performed there. Um, that building is no longer there, but there is a Mississippi Blues Trail marker um, that kind of signifies it. And um, we've got artifacts in the exhibit related to the Summers Motel. Um, the Riverside Hotel in Clarksdale, um, the E.F. Young Hotel in Meridian. Um, we've got um, artifacts related to green book sites from across the state. And for the most part, you know, of course, we're talking about a time in history when Mississippi was deeply, deeply segregated. Were these mostly black-owned businesses that were catering to black travelers? Yes, um, my understanding is that the Green Book exhibit exclusively um, uh, talked about black-owned businesses. And um, it's important for me to note that um, although this exhibit is exploring this, this tough time in history, it's really a celebration of the many black-owned businesses that, that made these journeys possible, that, that made it possible for African Americans to be able to travel throughout this country and um, really embrace what it means to be an American. You've mentioned that some of these sites, some of these critical sites really in American history no longer exist. And I wonder if you're at all concerned as someone involved in this work that we are letting black history kind of slip through our hands here in Mississippi. Well, I think um, that's one of the challenges um, uh, for an institution like the Mississippi Department of Archives and History. I, I think... Um, you know, the fact that we are losing a lot of this history um, really uh, enables us to really pay more attention to, uh, you know, some of these black um, landmarks across the state. Um, with our historic preservation program, for example, um, we've got a real big focus on trying to make sure that we identify Rosenwald schools across the state that are still in existence. And just for your listeners, uh, Rosenwald schools were black um, institutions that were created in this state and throughout the South um, because of the fact that this, 
you know, these states were not giving adequate funding to black school districts. And so um, the Rosenwald family um, coordinated with a lot of these communities to start black schools and black libraries, and a lot of them are gone now. But there's still some that are around, and so one of the goals of our Historic Preservation Division is to identify a lot of those schools and make sure that if it's a possibility to be able to preserve those for the next generations, that we that we do that. Michael Morris is with the two Mississippi museums. The museums are open Tuesday through Sunday, and on Sunday, admission is free. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.